know, Daylight Church is nothing if not able to talk about difficult topics, and uh, we're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which I'll talk about in just a second. I thought it was a t-ball. I thought we'd just tee it up and hit it out of the park, and then you realize that Jesus had some really challenging things to say in this sermon, and uh, the, the next step, it gets, he, he, he touches on stuff that we don't want to talk about. He says, whoever, it's also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give him a certificate of a divorce. So the, the policy before was, if you want to get divorced... Uh, you, you write a paper and it's done, and that was kind of the, the Judaic view on things. And he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so Jesus talks about stuff that we kind of want to leave uh, in the closet somewhere. You know, I, I, I was thinking about people and their, their marital status, and, and nobody wants to talk about divorce. Nobody wants to use the D word. Single people kind of have this impression of, well, not me. It's not, it's not going to happen to me. My, if, I, if I was to ever get married, it's going to be great. And married people, the divorce card is like the last card you play. Like you don't say the D word in marriage. And, and so, so it's, 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 it's like talking about the sewer over lunch. You just, it's, you just don't do it. And then, and then for, for the divorce people, it's thanks for pouring salt in the wound. So if you bring up divorce at all, it just brings back painful memories or, or a painful part of their life or shame or or discomfort, or whatever. So it's kind of this word that we, we kind of hide. And Jesus says, let's not hide it. Let's, let's bring it out, and let's talk about it. And it, it makes us uncomfortable, and he, he makes us uncomfortable pretty, pretty consistently throughout the Sermon on the Mount, talking about topics that we wanted to leave hidden, like, like lust and hypocrisy and so forth. And he brings it all out and lays it on the table and let's, says, let's deal with this stuff. And I, last week I wasn't with you because I was officiating Abby's wedding uh, it was a beautiful event, beautiful affair outdoor, and uh, the, the, the altar area was made with ancient wood and, and ancient stones, and just, just this beautiful event, and of course, as the bride and groom leave, everybody claps and cheers, and everybody's really excited, and, and what we don't think about, so, so I, I saw this quote recently that said, the church does a great job of celebrating and encouraging weddings, but not enough to build marriages, and then when things fall apart, we pronounce judgment, increase shame compound regret, and heap on misery. So we, we clap and throw rice or bubbles or whatever it is at the marriage at the wedding, but then the marriage is kind of left up to the individuals or to the couple to kind of figure out. And so I think the church universal needs to do a better job of, of just encouraging people who are married and, and serving them. But Jesus kind of identifies this reality that most will really struggle. And I, I originally... I. I I showed this clip of him yelling, I hate you, and I wish you were dead. And, and some people in this room have probably been in similar situations. I've been in similar situations where I've said things to people that I wish I could rein it back in and take it back in. But uh, I originally on this slide it said most will be miserable, meaning uh, there's about a 50% divorce rate. In, uh, globally, that's about the, about the rate. And then, so, you, so you know about 50% end up miserable as a, as, as in their marriage, and then what percentage stay married despite their misery. And so statistically, you walk down the aisle and... Everybody throws rice and everybody cheers, but statistically, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a challenge. And Jesus isn't afraid of confronting that challenge. And when he, when he talked about his words on divorce and, and marriage, his disciples approached him and said, you know, he says, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. And, and Jesus goes on to say, some people get that and some people don't, basically. Uh, marriage, marriage is challenging, and, and not, all, not all marriages make it till death do us part. And Jesus doesn't want us throwing that in the closet and pretending it doesn't exist, but he wants us addressing it and talking about it. And what you find is that it's almost universal. Like in this, in this clip you just saw where he breaks down and cries, he says, I'm sorry. He, 
there's this sense of that wasn't me, or I didn't, I didn't mean to become this person, or I didn't mean for the, to develop this far. Almost anyone who was divorced would say, would say it wasn't supposed to be like this. And so what happens is people go through the hardest times of their life, and the church says, do it over there. Don't do it here. And if you do it, and if you, if you keep going down this road, you're, you're kind of ostracized from the church. There's a label placed on you like you don't, you don't belong anymore. You don't belong in certain positions of ministry. And in my opinion, some of that has happened as we've twisted and misunderstood the application of Scripture, which we're going to dive into a little bit. But I saw this quote. It says, Sometimes we turn Jesus' words into a weapon against wounded people instead of examining our own hearts and marriages as Jesus wills. So it's that marriage, that, those people, those divorced people, or those, those people who are struggling in the marriage are the bad guy. And if they would just get things right, everything would come along. And that's just not, not the reality. I've talked to a lot of people who have been through divorces or who have struggling marriages. And this week I was talking to a friend, I'm going to call Alice, and she talked about her, her divorce years ago. She said, I kept thinking I can fix this, but I couldn't. And then this is the part that really really burns and kind of steams me. She said, afterward, I felt like no one would want any, me in any position of the church. So once, once the I do's became I don't, then the church said I don't to her, or at least, at least that was perceived and, and felt. And, 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 and when asked about remarrying and if she ever remarried, she said, if you can't do it right the first time, what makes you think you could do it again? So she's never remarried, and there's a lot of divorced people uh, or, or even people in bad marriages feel like maybe there's something wrong with me. And there's, there's not a, this loving, graceful dynamic of marriage is hard. Relationship is hard. I was talking to a, a buddy on the phone yesterday who's been, they're very, very COVID serious. And so they've been isolated in an 800, foot square, 800 square foot apartment with their spouse for however many months this has been. And they're just kind of driving each other crazy and hating each other right now. And, 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 and they're people that love each other quite a bit. But, man, that close proximity, that, that much without any break with anyone is challenging. And we just have to, I think we need to recognize that, that marriage is challenging and, and offer people some grace and some tenderness. Uh, I've got a friend, Joe, who almost immediately after becoming married, he, he poured out his heart uh, to me one day over lunch. And after, after his marriage, almost immediately he found out that his wife was completely adverse to physical intimacy with him. And so he lived in a sexless marriage for many, many years. And occasionally she would indulge him with pity sex and do the star, what they call the starfish, where one partner just lays there. And she would, she would verbally say things to him like, could you hurry up? Let's get this over with. And so it was a completely, it was a marriage lacking in physical intimacy for years and years. And he went through counseling and he went to pastors and all the pastors said, well, you married her, you're stuck with her. And there wasn't any sense of let's either fix this or that this is already not a marriage. There was, there was no mercy towards, towards those opinions. And, but then on the, alter, the other end of the spectrum, I had a friend named John that I'm calling John in college. And John's parents were divorced and remarried. So now the twosome had become four. And he was thoroughly convinced that unless his parents divorced their current spouses and returned to their first spouses, they were going to hell. Because that's how God views divorce. And he was certain of it, and he was torn, tormented all the time, praying for his family that they would divorce their current spouses to remarry their first spouses, because he was convinced God word, God's word declared that they were lost. And he based it on things like this, this passage out of Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, in bold, I put it in bold print because that's kind of how we read it, I hate divorce, says the Lord. And, and, and many times what the church reads is, I hate divorce, and if you're part of that, you're, you somehow fit into that 
despising that we, we have, this, this negativity that we have, is you, you have come under the wrath of God at this point. And I just don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that's the reality. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we go on. We, we've, we've talked a lot in the Sermon on the Mount about whether Jesus meant look out or law. And in some, a law is you shouldn't exceed the speed limit. But a lookout is if you exceed the speed limit and you're going too fast, it's dangerous. And I believe that's a lot of what Jesus was saying in a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, and a lot of the rule, things that we read as rules, he was reading as, hey, caution, proceed carefully. And I believe this is one of those cases. I thought, I thought Termaine handled the, the passage on taking oaths masterfully last weekend, and he, he mentioned that Jesus says this. He says, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord as a religious duty. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to say, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything else comes from the evil one. And if you wanted to make that a hard, fast rule, it means you should never say, I promise, you let your yes be yes and your no be no and anything else is from the devil. I mean, you could, you could be like my friend John from college and say, you're going to hell if you say anything but yes or anything but no. You could, you could take it that far. But he also pointed out that later in, in Scripture, Paul takes an oath. He says, I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. And he talks about people swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. So the author of Hebrews and the Apostle Paul obviously didn't think that this was a law that you could only say yes or you could only say no, but instead it was a cautionary thing that Jesus was trying to show. It said, be careful about what you say. Be careful about what comes out of your mouth. And so when we talk about look out or law, I think it's important that we, talk, that we continue that thought process through the Sermon on the Mount as he tackles some really difficult topics. Super interesting, this passage in Malachi 2.16, Hebrew scholars have a really really hard time interpreting it. And if you, go to, if you go to the English Standard Version versus the NIV versus the Revised Standard versus the New Living Translation versus the Message, you're going to find five different connotations completely when it comes to how God feels about divorce and what he thinks. And this is, this is how one version trans, translates that same passage where it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. Another version says, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord. The God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect. Now all of a sudden it looks like, doesn't it look more like a lookout than a law? And this is, this is just translation. This is just the Hebrew, Hebrew scholars aren't, aren't really quite positive exactly how this verse ought to be translated. Another version says this. It says, the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And we don't have time to go into textual criticism and how we figure out when the Bible says what it says, but... Just understand that even this passage where, where my friend John would say, God hates divorce. Well, is that really what it means? Is that he has some kind of animosity towards this thing? Or, or is he looking at it with sorrow? Is he looking at it with concern? Because in one, in one view, God is unconcerned and, and mean. And in the other view, he's, very, he's quite concerned and loving. And I think the latter view is the accurate view. So we need to continue to ask the question, is it look out or law? Is this passage meant as literalism or as as some people call it, rhetorical overstatement? Jesus hammers stuff hard in the Sermon on the Mount as a wake-up call, but not necessarily because he's trying to establish laws, and we don't have time to go into all that, but it might be summed up by talking about conviction versus sentencing. So, and here's what I mean is, we, we have laws, and laws say you cannot do this, but that doesn't determine what happens to you if you break the law, and Jesus doesn't touch that in this passage. He just talks about the conviction. He says, if a man divorces his wife, it is, a, it is adultery. It's not a condemnation. It's an observation. I was, I was driving one day under the effects of NyQuil. Um, I was sick. I had the flu. I was probably 23 years old. 
And I, I went right through, a, and I, the, the weird thing was I was praying the whole way home. And I was praying in tongues, and if that freaks you out, come talk to me. But I was praying in tongues, and then I was praying, God, protect me, make me feel better, get me home. And I ran right through a red light, partially because I was so focused on praying, which, because I'm very, very spiritual. And I ran through a red light like this, and a cop came to a screeching halt, almost T-boning me, because I ran this red light. And so... I explained, I explained to the police officer, I said, I said, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm just not in my right mind right now. I went, I went to buy medicine, and that's what I did. I had gone to get medicine, and some cough and cold medicine, and I was driving home, and I just wanted to be in bed, and I explained to her that my, my house is three blocks over. I was just trying to get there, and I'm so sorry. And she, she gave me a warning. So I had broken the law. The law says you can't do that. But under the circumstances, she, showed, she gave me amnesty. She showed me mercy because of where I was at. And our laws are built that way in such a way that when you break the law, you can be convicted, but then you stand before a judge for your sentencing. And the sentencing can vary depending on the circumstances. And so when Jesus says it is adultery, he's not saying, therefore, you're going to hell. He's not saying, therefore, you are lost. He's saying adultery is, ba or, adultery is bad. Divorce is bad. It's not God's will for anyone. It's not God's will for any relationship to be torn. And it's, it's an observation not a condemnation. And then you have to ask questions like, so, so scripture describes infidelity and abandonment as the two times that, that divorce is not unlawful, right? But then you have to ask the question is, what constitutes abandonment? What constitutes infidelity? If a person has a pornography addiction, is that infidelity? Does that count? If a person ignores you emotionally and doesn't meet your needs at all and doesn't care about you anymore, is that abandonment? Or does, do, they have, do they have to literally absolutely non-figuratively non, non walk for it to count. And these are important questions that we need to, we need to face, with, face off with instead of just pretending, like making this whole situation cut and dried and easy because it's not. It also says in Scripture that if an unbeliever wants to walk, let them. So then you have to ask the question is, who is an unbeliever? If a person has been verbally abusive for a while but pray, prays and tithes, are they an unbeliever? It, it, it becomes complicated when you start to understand what Scripture mandates as far as what the law says and base conviction versus sentencing. At what point are the vows broken? Yeah. I had another quote I want to find here. One second. Oh, it's much later. Uh, at, one, at what point are the vows broken? So, so the vows include things not only like, until death do us part, will I be faithful and not, not have sex with someone else. they things like to cherish and to honor. Like at what point has the divorce already occurred even though the papers haven't been signed? These are, these are tough questions, and I don't mean to give any answers. I just, I just mean to say that this is, this is not super simple, super simple stuff. In fact, some... some Greek commentaries on the New Testament seem to contradict themselves, and it becomes really challenging to figure out what it was meant to say in the first place. The same commentary says, to read the Sermon on the Mount legalistically as a set of rules is to miss the point. It represents a demand more radical than any legislator could conceive. And so this, this is so funny. This commentary says, obviously, this is rhetorical blowing up a little bit. But then in the same commentary, it says, remarriage is adulterous because God rejects the validity of divorce. It means God doesn't recognize, like, like God can't see that two people would separate. And so, 
So even the people who study the Greek and study the language have a hard time discerning what is this supposed to mean. And I think it all ties up, or it all rounds up in this experience that we had recently at my home. And we had a leak in our backyard. And uh, we walked out in the backyard, and there was, I mean, there was water standing everywhere where your feet, there was one point in the yard where I couldn't step in the yard because my feet would start to sink because it was so muddy because so much water had become, come up. And my wife could give you the numbers, but if we... If we normally go through 5,000 gallons of water, we went through 50,000 gallons of water that, that, that month. I mean, the, the meter just went crazy because all this water was gushing out. And we, we finally figured out kind of the general vicinity of where it was coming from because you could literally see it spewing out of the ground if you looked closely. And we started digging. And ultimately, we came up on these two pipes. You can see the one in the back is still partially covered, and the one in the front has now been repaired. But they were at a 45-degree angle. And so there were two pipes running parallel like this. And, and one of them was busted. And so we turned off the water, didn't have water in the house for 13 people for a few days, and uh, tried to repair the lines. So we cut out a big portion of this plumbing, but then what we found was that the plumbing was so rigid, it was so hardened, and it, you know, it, it went into the ground here and it went into the ground here. You can see to the right and the left that we couldn't quite get the plumbing to match up because there was no, spa there was no flexibility. There was no space to get, get, this, get the plumbing in. And so when we fixed it, instead of coupling like it should, it coupled partially. And as soon as we turned it on, geyser. It was so rigid that we couldn't fix the situation until I discovered that they make now what I call stretchy pipes. I don't, know, I don't remember exactly. I don't, know, I don't know what they're actually called anymore, but you can see it on the right part. There's, a, there's like a, a circular part of the pipe that it looks like telescopes, and it's exactly what it does. So you adhere, you use PVC cement on one end, and then you pull it out and, it's, and you twist it as you adhere it on the other, and boom, problem solved. And I feel, I feel like as we confront this Sermon on the Mount, this will make sense in just a minute, and you're probably already jiving with me on it, but he talks about anger and lust and unfaithfulness and how we talk and retaliation, which we'll get into next week, and hate for enemies, hypocrisy, hoarding, worry, judgmentalism, false and misplaced religion. This is this wonderful list that we would prefer not to think about. But as we look at questions about whether it's lookout or law, whether it's observation or condemnation, I've, I've talked recently about how I believe it's supposed to show two things. And one is that I can't. And that's what I, that's what I felt with this pipe, is that me trying to muscle it in there, me trying to fix it without, without some external help was just absolutely impossible. But what we've talked about is how God says I can and how the gospel, that's, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is your yard is leaking. There's stuff where it shouldn't be. You're, you're expending resources that you shouldn't be expending. Life is harder than you have to make it, and you can't fix it yourself. And that's, in my opinion, kind of the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to say, stop trying so hard, because now here comes the stretchy pipe. Here comes the gospel that says, and it's Jesus saying, I will come into that rigid system where you've broken the law, where everything is bad, where it's too hard to fix, and, and as long as it's broken, you can't, you, there's no fresh water in your life. And he says, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to put myself in that situation, and I'm going to fill that gap. And that's, that's the gospel of Jesus. And so I, I want to talk briefly about this idea of being divorced and married and remarried and, and how it fits into kind of every person's situation. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. And in 1 Corinthians 7 is kind of a, a long text about divorce and remarriage and singleness and so forth, and, and I would encourage you to read it on your own. But in it, he says this. He says, nevertheless, each person should live as a believer Note that, note that portion. Live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned them, just as God has called them. And so he, he's basically saying if you're married, live as a believer. 
If you're single, live as a believer. And I'm going to extrapolate that a little further and say, if you're divorced, live as a believer. Wherever you're, wherever you're at and whatever situation you find yourself where marital status is concerned, it's as a believer. It's as one who, who trusts in Jesus. So I want to go through each of these categories, and then we're going to talk about the married twice. There's the married people who are happy and the married people who are unhappy. And, what it, and, and obviously, this could be a 14-week series where we go through each step and talk about what you should do or what you should, some things that would help, but we don't have time for that, so I'm going to fly through some stuff. And let's start with single people. So single people in the church, and if you're single in here, you've probably gotten this vibe from many people that, that they're wondering when you're going to fix that. Like, like you're broken until you get married. And here's, here's how it goes. I've talked about this before. When you're single, people want you married. When you're married, they want you to have a kid. When you have a kid, they want you to have a second kid. When you have a second kid, then they start to back off a little bit and think a third kid is a little weird. And once you get to fourth kid, you're way out of line. That's, like, like for whatever reason, that's, that's the system. Is Once you've had three kids, people stop asking, when are you going to have another kid? And once you tar- start telling kids, I'm going to have a four- people, I'm going to have a fourth kid, they're like, mm, that's great for you. But when you're single, they expect you to get married. And they have this sense of that, that there's this brokenness about you. And I just want to let you know that it's okay to have a party of one. There's a, there's a movie with Steve Martin called The Lonely Guy, and the lonely guy walks into a restaurant, and he says, how many are in your party? And he says, party of one. And the guy gets on the mic and goes, party of one, 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 one. And it echoes through the whole building, and a spotlight shines down on him, and everybody at all the tables grows still and looks at him like, what is wrong with you? Why would you possibly be here by yourself? And I want to let you know that it's okay to be a party of one. Jesus was a party of one. The apostle Paul was a party of one, and the scripture has many references to singleness is a blessing. You can do things as a single that you can't do as a married. You can think about things and, and live your life in such a way that, that, that married people cannot. I want to encourage you to check the fantasies. We live in a world that, that every, every marriage is just going to be hunky-dory and super fantastic and, and that there's, there's, there's romance in the air constantly and it's just not the reality. And I think anybody who's ever been married would tell you that's just not the reality. But in fact, throughout most of history, most, most marriages were, occurred for practical reasons. We, we, we've just now, over the last few centuries, in, in my understanding, come to the place where we think marriage is going to make me existentially happy. I heard this morning about the evasive trait of happiness, that we think happiness is stemmed from a romantic relationship, and most of history people didn't realize that. And so if, if you think that marital status is the answer to your existential need for happiness, you're probably mistaken, and you should check that. I would encourage you not to rush. Like the, like the disciples said when they found out about Jesus' view on marriage, they said, well, it's probably better not to get married. And Jesus kind of said, you got that right, pal. Don't be in a hurry to do this thing. It's hard. You want to marry the right person. Don't get in a rush because your hormones are raging or because your biological clock is ticking, which I saw in a movie once. I don't know which movie it was. It was yes, it was some mumbling. I, yes, I agree. My cousin Vinny. Yeah, that's what it was. My cousin Vinny. And uh, don't let the system rush you. This is this is a decision that you want to take cautiously and carefully. It's a good person that you're 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 pledging till death do us part. So on this side of of the aisle, when pre-marriage, take your time, get good counseling, hear hear from other people, and make the decision well. And I I think if you if you interviewed most of your divorced friends, many of them would say we kind of moved into this thing too quickly. I, 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 I went into it with blinders on because I didn't really know what I was getting into. Many divorcees would say that. And so you have, as a single person, you have the privilege of being on the front end of that. So just take your time. 
Also in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. You have this particular ability to relish where you are and to serve God in capacities that married people can't. And I want to encourage you to take advantage of that. i got to fly. I'm running out of time. Married and happy. Let's talk about married and happy. Number one, don't take it for granted. You can be married and happy today and married and miserable a year from now if you let things slide. Marriage is something to invest in, and I want to encourage you to do that. Take it to the next level. I saw this quote. Most marriage vows promise more than I won't commit adultery, lust after someone else, or divorce you. Most people marry with the explicit or implicit expectation of enduring mutual love. In marriage, people can trust enough to intimately expose the depths of their hearts. So I want to encourage you to find the thing and feed the thing. Whatever it is that makes your spouse tick, feed that thing. For my wife, I've, I, I think I've figured out that part of it is, is just my presence. And I mean, can you blame her, right? Part of it is just me being there and not being elsewhere. So, so some, some kind of uh, proximity thing is really important to her. But secondly is that she needs, she needs a break every now and then. And I'm try, I'm try, it, it doesn't come naturally for me to, un, to unload the dishwasher, but, but to unload the dishwasher to notice things around the house and to work on them, to, to put the kids to bed or to get them dressed at night. These, these things feed her soul. And, and part of it is that she's kind of malnourished if she doesn't have that because there's such stuff just sucks the life out of her all the time. And she could easily tell you what my needs are as well. And it's to figure out what that thing is and just to, to feed, that, feed that thing constantly. It's like throwing, throwing wood on a fire. Is fig, figure out what it is and feed it. And then I want to encourage you also just to relish it. And you're going to be surprised to find that even for the, un, even for the divorced and even for the, uh, the married having trouble, that we're going to talk about this relishing of figuring out where you're at. And there's a place of joy and there's a place of God and a place of peace right in the middle of it. And the, for, for the married and happy, it feels easier probably. But don't take it for granted. Enjoy it and love it. But let's talk about like the couple that you just saw in the video clip. What about the married and struggling? I want to encourage you not to fight it alone. Because the church has been so bad on this topic, many people feel like they can't trust the church with the topic. There's a lot of topics like that, but this is one of the big ones is if you're really struggling in your marriage, nobody wants to say that. Uh, there, there's, this, there's this sense of shame or embarrassment or fear of what the response will be. Don't do it alone. I, I encourage, I encourage every, every believer to have a good counselor, but especially if you're in a struggling marriage, is to, to get professional help sit down with somebody and talk through the issues. Talk to your pastor, talk to your friends. In many cases, I want to encourage you to fight longer and harder. So I find myself, this is the part of the sermon that I'm most nervous about right now because I find myself in this weird place of being a pastor that believes in a high view of scripture that says divorce is bad news. It's not God's desire for anyone. And yet I also believe there are marriages that are together that have been divorced for a whole long time. They just haven't signed the paper. And I don't, I don't know what to do with that information. But I do want to say this, that the marriage relationship, it, every pastor I know, every spiritual leader I know that says if the relationship is abusive, separate, get out. But then you start to have to define abusive, and there's degrees of abuse. And at what point does a lack of em empathy become abuse, for example? So I want to say that this relationship is worth fighting for, but I don't want you to end up condemned if you, if you walk the road of divorce. I, I, but I want to start with asking God for a miracle. God does miracles. I've heard too many stories of marriages that were right on the fritz that didn't look like they were going to make it, that God moved in. And, and 
I want to encourage you to start praying that. Pray for God to do something in your relationship and pray that the miracle starts with you. In marriage, we want to change the other and we're just fine. The miracle needs to happen in you. And I, I don't want to say in every marriage what that looks like, but start there. Is ask for a miracle and let the miracle start in you. Again, check the fantasies. If you're thinking that marriage is going to solve all your existential problems where, which pertain to happiness, you're just mistaken. It's never going to do that. And so maybe, maybe part of it is a little shift on what the expectation of marriage ought to look, look like. I also want to encourage you to invest in your spiritual life heavily. The General Social Survey, which is done at the University of Chicago, says this, 60% of the never attendees, so it was talking about people who divorce within a faith community. 60% of the never attendees had been divorced or separated compared to only 38% of weekly attendees. And this is not a pastor saying, hey, you need to get in church. This is just to say that there, there are statistics to show that people who take their spiritual lives seriously have a leg up in this situation. It's not to say that you can't be a lover of Jesus and go through this. It's just to say that the spiritual part of your life is a key component in this conversation and make sure that's where you look first is where am I with God because God will shape you and change you in ways that you can't shape and change yourself but know you're not condemned in Romans chapter 8 it says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and if we just meditated on this for a long time we could start to change how we view so many things but you are not condemned in Jesus Jesus does not condemn Jesus does not condemn there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation in Jesus. There is no condemnation in Jesus. Wherever you stand, whatever you're dealing with, condemnation is not absolutely forever. Understand this. It is not coming from Jesus. He doesn't condemn. He might comment. He might tell you a path that's bad, but it's not condemnation. Later in the same passage, it says... Who then is the one who condemns? No one. And the reason it gets to this point is because it says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Then it says Jesus is the judge of all. And it follows with there is now no condemnation. There is no one to condemn because Jesus is the only judge. He's the only one who could judge. And there's no condemnation from him. There is no condemnation. No matter where you find yourself in your marital status, in your marital history, your romantic relationships... No matter how rigid the pipes feel and you can't, you can't quite get them to put together the way you want to, he's not condemning you. He is for you and not against you. I want to encourage you to relish where you are. In James it says we consider it pure joy whenever we face trials of many times because it, the testing of our faith produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And so, so you, you actually are in a situation where you can grow in ways that a person not struggling may not grow. So you have to find kind of the light in the tunnel at this point. Now let's talk about the people who have been divorced. And again, I get it that we're skirting over stuff that, I mean, there's so much to say here. There's so much meat on this bone that we just don't have time to chew. But let's talk about those who are already divorced. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Whether your condemnation comes from someone else who says, well, you're marred, you're scarred, you're broken, you, you did it poorly one time, what makes you think you could do it right again? Whatever, whatever those voices are that condemn or, or make you lesser, those are not coming from God. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I, I do want to encourage you to look back and move forward. Sometimes post-divorce, people will have this tendency to not examine the parts 
of themselves that need to be examined. It takes two to tango and whatever the reason for the divorce was, odds are nobody played their cards correctly. And so it's important that you look back and say, what, what do I need to learn? How do I need to grow? But again, do you see this, this is about stopping the leaks in your yard. It's not about you being a yard that is worthless forever. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And this pastor says, go for it. When I quoted Alice earlier, she said she felt like the church wouldn't want her in any position in the church anymore, and this pastor doesn't feel that way at all. I, I, I feel like it's, I'm, I believe God is a today forward person. Um, we can, if you want to, if, if you have, comf- if you're just, if you're uncomfortable with that position because of some, something you've read in scripture, something you've been taught, let's do lunch and let's talk about it. But I'm saying, if God's calling you to a ministry, if God's prompting you to do something, if God's asking you to step forward, if God's asking you to serve, say yes. Don't be afraid because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I pray and hope Daylight Church will be a church where there's no condemnation because you are needed. We need you. You, you know things that other people don't know. You've experienced things that others haven't. I'm out of time. Relish where you are. You're in a great place, and there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And I want to close with one thought of the foundation of this teaching. The foundation of this teaching is that relationships were meant to be faithful. Relationships and fidelity is important. And whether it's the marital relationship or whether it's friendship relationships, God didn't design a world where he wanted anyone to hate anyone, where he didn't want anyone breaking down and sobbing because of the bitterness and the, the, the heart-wrenching anger they felt towards another person. That, that, that wasn't part of his agenda. He doesn't, he doesn't want divorce. And when I say divorce, I mean it in a literal term, not, a, not connected to marriage at all. Divorce, to divorce is to be rent asunder or to be broken. And God never wanted broken relationships for people. And I saw a couple quotes recently online. One person said, I've lost faith in humanity. I'm just beaten by everything, and honestly, I don't see it ever improving. And another person said, I'm done, just done with life and all of this expletive. And I want to encourage you that the foundational teaching here is that bridges are to be built as much as possible. In this evil world, wicked world, where some people don't care and some people will never love you, we have to be people that fight for relationship, not for sundering. Don't escape this battle just because the world is jacked up just because the world is filled with hate. Don't be a person, don't let the devil win and and consume you with the same stuff just because someone else is bitter or ugly or mean or wicked. Just like in marriage, you have to fight for it. We kind of have to fight for our souls in in this crazy world that we live in. We have to fight to love other people. We have to fight to care for other people. We can't just give up. It doesn't mean you don't ever separate from people. I heard it recently, and I think I've shared it in here, that that proper boundaries means finding the place where I can love you and me at the same time. And sometimes you have to set up boundaries. I'm not saying that. I'm, but I'm saying don't give in to despair. Don't break away and, and let go of the world. But find those relationships that are binding. Find those relationships that are solid and invest in those. Super interesting to me. And, and you are needed. If you give up, there's going to be a gap where there shouldn't be a gap. We need you. Super interesting. The New Testament, and this is my last thought, it closes with a wedding. It closes with a marriage. In Revelation, it says, in 19, 7 through 8, it says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It describes this marriage banquet where everyone is invited, 
and you come in and you, you have become the bride of Christ. And so, so I just want to close with this thought that in the end, it's all going to be whole. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There's none, none towards you. There's none towards people. He is standing there cheering for people. He's, want, he's wanting to fill the gaps in their life so that their water, the water can flow where it's supposed to flow in their lives. But in the end, this whole thing is going to be restored. So no matter your marital status, whether you're single, married and happy, married and miserable, or divorced, you have a cheerleader in Christ Jesus who is not condemning you at all but wants you to step forward and continue on with him and never give up. And that's his heart for you.